Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, just in time for peak summer travel season, the author of a book entitled The Last Resort, a chronicle of paradise, profit, and peril at the beach. Hello and welcome, Sarah Stodola. That's exactly right. Hi. Oh, man, I was going back and forth. I meant to ask you if it was a long O or a schwa. It was a coin flip. People usually get it 50-50, so <laughs> you, you, you guessed right. Thank you for, for joining me. You run a – travel's your thing. You run an online travel magazine. That's sort of the main day-to-day -day gig. Is that right? Um, it's, it's one of the main day-to-day -day gigs. Yeah. And it's sort of, you know, it's called Flong and it sort of grew out of, um, the travel writing that I was doing for more mainstream publications. And, and I, I kind of wanted this outlet where more critical or, you know, thought provoking writing about the concept of travel and the industry of travel could, could appear. And, and yeah. And I mean, that's kind of the same that the book grew out of also is that desire. Yeah, for sure. Because on the face of it, it was a little surprising to me that you, you know, let's face it, most travel publications celebrate the concept of, of travel. And for the most part, I'm sure that's what Flung Magazine does. Uh, I actually read a little thing that you put up there. I know you didn't write it about the Culver Hotel, which is, I could just about, I could just about walk to the Culver Hotel from where I'm sitting right now. The jewel, right. the jewel of downtown Culver City. Um, uh, so you, you, you run this travel magazine, but you've also written a book that largely dams the concept of the resort industry specifically and uh, international travel in a more broad sense. Um, yeah, how, how, how do you reconcile those two sides of what you do professionally? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's what makes a book like this important is that most, like I said, you know, the most of the mainstream media that covers travel, travel publications, tend to approach it with kind of rose colored glasses. It's always meant to kind of inspire travel or help, you know, potential travelers decide where to go, that kind of thing. It's always kind of portraying travel in a positive light. Um, and I don't completely with this book want to um, tell people they shouldn't be going to the beach anymore. That's not, that's not really my intent, but it is my intent to start looking at it um, a little more critically and to kind of start understanding what an enormous global industry and an enormous part of the global economy, travel and, and beach tourism um, in particular, have become. Just in, in one sentence, because I, I expected just from the book, uh, I expected like sort of a one note hit piece on some combination of climate crisis and third world exploitation. In, in a nutshell, what, what, what do you say your book is about? I say it is about getting to the bottom of our love of the beach, figuring out where that love of the beach came from, uh, how that love of the beach became the basis for this enormous global, indus enormous global industry, um, 
And then looking at how that enormous global industry is facing some pretty unique challenges from climate change right now. It's funny. I feel like the place that you start from, not in, in the book, but in your personal journey, your relationship with beach travel and the beach in general is, uh, I, I haven't met too many people who I feel like I'm such a kindred spirit with where it, you just, it's always taken for granted the beach. What could possibly be better than the beach? And when you're a kid, you don't mind, you don't mind being dirty and somebody else is going to clean up the mess. So there's a lot of things going for the beach when you're a child. Um, I was surprised to learn from your book that it's only a recent phenomenon that people have uh, unmixed feelings towards going to the beach and that perhaps the vast majority of people would have avoided rather than paid good money to go to a beach, speaking in the historical scope of things. Yeah, I think that's right. I think before kind of about the 1700s, most people had a healthy, robust fear of the beach and of the ocean and, and would avoid it unless, you know, it was necessary to engage with it. Um, and then, you know, that sort of started to change, you know, in the 1500s or so explorers, European explorers were going out into the ocean, returning to tell the tale, sort of, you know, conquering the unknown in, in that sense. Um, and then in the 1700s, um, in England, there was already this kind of inland spa culture in England where, you know, people would go and go to the spa, get in different pools and, you know, all that um, for their health. But it was kind of a fluke that a few doctors in England started touting the health benefit, the supposed health benefits of seawater. Um, and that's really how the first seaside resort started, not as a place to go for fun, um, but as a place to go to convalesce from a sickness or or to just improve your health in general. Um, and it wasn't really a fun place to go. You would go, you would get dunked in freezing water. You would be prescribed to drink seawater, um, to wash your eyes out with seawater. It was it was kind of nuts in that way. Uh, <laughs> so it really didn't become a fun, fun place or perceived as a fun place to go until the opening of the, the casino in Monaco, in Monte Carlo, um, that was the first time that this concept of the seaside resort was really combined with a place to go for indulgence and decadence and to, to kind of leave your troubles behind. Um, and, and, and it kind of exploded from there. You make a point in the book uh, specifically about Monte Carlo, but about other places and other places that I've personally uh, taken vacations. It's Interesting how many places that are beachy, that are beach destinations, that either kind of really don't have a beach or have like a pretty crappy beach. What 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 is what? Why is it that I mean I can understand how you can lure suckers to the beach and then they get them they go wait a second this is like thirty feet of uh, gravel I'm never coming back here but there's successful resort destinations built on the back of beaches that are terrible beaches what do they what, what appeal do they have if it's not the ostensible thing that they're delivering right I think some of that is just good marketing yeah um some of it is a place like Waikiki that originally did have a fantastic beach but very quickly after Waikiki became a resort destination the beach suffered and already by the 1920s the beach was washing away and they were struggling to you know maintain it and and replenish it um and so in a 
in a case like that, it's, it's reputation just kind of precedes it and hasn't caught up with the reality on the ground, which is that, you know, you go to Waikiki today and uh, big stretches of it, you know, are covered with sandbags trying to hold, you know, the shore in place. Some, some stretches just have a wall, like a seawall. Some don't have a beach at all. It's yeah. So it's, uh, it's resting on its, on its prior reputation in that case. How many, you may not have considered them vacations, but they, they were, how many vacations did you take to write this? I mean, you seemingly visited every beach that there is. Well, <laughs> I, I, I visited every beach that is in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, it's a lot. How, but, how many places did you go to? Did you ever actually tally up the final dollar figure for this? I didn't. Um, I don't think I want to. No. <laughs> Um, I mean, I did try to, you know, group the different research trips into one, you know, sure. like the all of the Asia destinations I did in, you know, one large trip. So, so I, I was trying to kind of keep it com compartmentalized in that way. Um, but yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't tallied up, up the whole thing. <laughs> to, Prefer not to. <laughs> yeah. To, to the best of my knowledge, I've never met anyone who has... Do, do, are we here in America supposed to say Ibiza or Ibiza? Um, in Ibiza, they would say you're supposed to say Ibiza. I know where they um. stand on the issue. I've never been, <laughs> and I know where England stands on the issue, but I've never been right, totally right. clear if I'm being, uh, uh, if it's too much for me to indulge that or if I'm being a hick to not. Yeah. If it's too much, what? Sorry. To, to, am I supposed to hit the Z in America or are we going to play their game and? You know you what? Let's it? just generously say that you can Americanize the pronunciation if you want. And having never interacted with anyone that I'm aware of who's been there uh, on a scale of like spring break Cancun to literal mm -hmm. hell on earth, where do you have Ibiza? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say that, you know, it's, it is very spring break. It's a very uh, kind of British version of that party concept. Um, it would not generally be my thing if I, if I weren't, if I were choosing a place to go, not for research for a book, but just to go, um, I, I might consider it closer to the hell on earth, um, side of the spectrum. However, I will also say that, you know, Abitha is a, is a, is a large Island. And if you work hard, you know, you can get outside of party trail there. Um, so I, I think there are some parts of, of the island that are probably enjoyable to spend time at. See, and that touches on a larger phenomenon. And I know this just sounds like not uh, virtue signaling, but like taste signaling or something. I went on a vacation one time in uh, Belize. I forget what island I was in. And we really didn't realize we were on the wrong side of the island. We were like staying where all the workers live. And we had a great time eating oh, tacos okay. on the side of the road. And it was literally the last day that we went to the other end. And we're like, oh shit, this is where the resorts are. Is this where I was supposed to have been? Because I'm actually, I'm comfortable with the way that this played out. That's very often the case that people travel to the other side of the world to, this is obviously a subjective thing, but I don't, mm -hmm. it's kind of, to me, it's not really subjective. They go all the way to the other side of the world to miss the best parts of the place that they're visiting to stay in a place that's like 90% something they could find at an outback steakhouse up the road from where they live and maybe 10% local, local flavor. People, mm -hmm. it's a weird quirk of this that people not only want an Epcot Center version of other cultures tropical cultures but they're willing to fly 
to the place to have an extremely watered down uh, experience of the local culture. And that's sort of a consistent thing that you find, whether it's this resort area or that resort area around the world. Is that so? Yeah. I mean, there's a very standardized resort culture that you can find anywhere around the whole world. And I, I really do kind of think it's one of the unfortunate parts of beach resorts and, and beach tourism that so much of it is built so that you go on this vacation and you are kind of just funneled straight into this bubble that you often never, never leave. And it's, and so what you're getting really is resort culture. You're not getting the local culture. Um, I would say, you know, sometimes not even 10% of the experience would be the local culture. You said in your own experience, upon first blush, beach resorts, I think this is a quote from the book, weirded you out a little bit. I, <laughs> I get that. I, I think I get that more and more as, as time goes on. Um, tell me why you did or perhaps still do feel that way. I mean, I know we've already touched on it in terms of the, the, the beach resort culture, but there's lots of other yeah. reasons as well. Yeah, no, I mean, there is that. There's that, you know, like we said, you go to this place not to experience the place. Um, I found I find it so strange at, at resor resorts around the world that, you know, you go all this way to go to a beach and then the real competition for, for the lounge chairs is at the pool. Everybody wants to be at the pool, not at the beach. Like, that's so strange <laughs> to me. Um, I, you know, there's, there's so many elements of it that once you really start thinking about it are just a little weird. Like I said, um, one of them is that, uh, one of the kind of local culture experiences that, that you purportedly get when you go to a resort is that, you know, you a lot of times will, will see the local architect architecture, the traditional architecture and, um, in a lot of these places, Fiji is immediately coming to mind. That architecture doesn't exist anywhere except at the resorts now. So you're getting this kind of sort of historical version of it, but it's not the real local culture that that the Fijians are are living um, at this point. You know, they all have modern homes <laughs> uh, just like we do. You know, so it so that's a that's a strange thing of like um creating this local culture that actually doesn't really exist anymore well um, and, and ironically that maybe did exist to some extent or another but is only gone because of the resort yeah, that grew sure. up to replicate it it's very for odd. sure yeah for sure um yeah i mean there's I, there's other things of like you know if you go to a resort and um you know a lot of times like on saturday night they'll put on a traditional dance um uh, you know, from the local culture. And it turns out that those traditional dances have been very standardized and uh, they're not really often the the local traditional dance anymore. They're the one that tourists have come to expect that is more influenced by Hawaii, for example. Um, so it, that's another way that it's become very standardized. And I think really it is that kind of standardization that um, weirded me out about them. I felt like a horrible cliche any number of times reading your your book, and and I and I say this as someone who I don't go out of my way to go to the beach, but you know mm -hmm. the, be the beach happens. I'm married, you know. <laughs> occasionally, <laughs> we we have compromised vacations. I uh, I enjoyed my my honeymoon very much, but about ten years ago, I got married and stayed in 
Tulum. So I gather I was there. It was a, I was a little late to the party, but I, I feel in reading your book, I feel glad that I was at least there 10 years ago and not two right. or three. And I thought it was interesting because you sort of pick apart the issues with the resort culture near Tulum and then the ecotourism, which is just oh. down the road. I divided my honeymoon between those two places. So if I wanted to feel bad about having uh, done time, I guess it wouldn't be a Tulum resort. That would be a Cancun resort. You mean you you divided your trip between Cancun and Tulum? Is I suppose that... so. Yeah, that's right. We did Cancun okay. resort for a few days. My wife was pregnant. So she's like, okay, we'll just lay around for a couple of days and then we'll go and pay somebody a lot of money to not give us electricity or running water. <laughs> So I guess let, let's let me frame the question this way. What what is more ludicrous to go to Cancun to spend a bunch of money at a resort or to go to Tulum to spend a bunch of money at an eco resort? Uh, I mean, they're both, you know, I guess problematic in their own special, unique way. Yeah, right. How is that? Um, you know, Cancun at this point is so overdeveloped that, um, you know, it's hard to you're you're just so trapped in the in the resort environment when you're in Cancun at this point. And then, you know, Tulum, I guess, you know, there's more of a kind of hypocrisy in Tulum. Like Cancun is what it is and it's not trying to tell you it's something else. Tulum, on the other hand, kind of presents and market its markets itself as this eco paradise. Um when really it's it's the opposite because of the way that it's grown up. You know, there's no infrastructure along that whole stretch of beach. So um, almost all of the resorts run on diesel generators. Um, their waste does not get disposed of in a safe, um, responsible way. It's just kind of becoming this growing almost disaster. Um, at the same time, I think a lot of people that go there have no idea about that about that element of it because it is presented so differently. Right. And of course there's a willful ignorance in that because these things wouldn't be impossible right. to, to find out. And that segues into, I think my earliest experience in a resort is for some insane reason, this Irish family took me as a babysitter when I was 13. I was like, I don't know. They did not cast a very wide net for babysitters, obviously taking, <laughs> taking me. And we went to St. Thomas and this is in the nineties and th they made like the quote unquote mistake of seeing that there was like a carnival going on in town and oh, we'll take the kids, we'll go to a carnival, but it was a locals carnival. Mm -hmm. And I was so struck, even 13 year old me thought, boy, this seems like a really small island. And it seems like a lot of money is being made on the outer ring of this island mm -hmm. and none of it is, and I don't, maybe it was, maybe that was a higher standard of living than they would have had 50 years earlier, but I remember thinking even as a kid, boy, you would think that they would just shuffle a little bit more funds in here. If only so that if a tourist happened to get drunk and wander off a resort, they mm -hmm. wouldn't be in danger. It would, there would actually be, there would be a selfish reason to, um, to, uh, to take, to, to share some of this bounty with the people who live totally. on the island. In the book though, you paint a more nuanced picture of that. There are some places where the locals really do benefit from the resort industry, but then, as you've already sort of touched on, even that sometimes can be um, a, a be careful what you wish for mixed bag sort of scenario. Yeah, I mean, I think it always tends or almost always tends to be a double edged sword. Uh, it's it's not that the opening of resorts in a place doesn't benefit the local community. It certainly can 
but it does to, to different extents. Um, you know, back to that Fiji example, um, Fiji has really strong land rights laws in place um, for the, the local communities. So uh, they actually get to maintain their land. They generally rent it to the resorts. Um, so they're getting a you know, solid income from having resort culture there. Um, but then there's other places. Uh, Vietnam is a great example. You know, the central coast of Vietnam right now is, is developing very, very quickly. And they do have laws in place in Vietnam that, you know, say you can't take local land um, unless there's a good reason. And that good reason is, I forget the exact way it's worded, but something like for the public good. Um, and, and that is able to be very loosely interpreted, interpreted um, so that the government will take land from the locals and, and give it to an outside developer to build a, a big resort. And in that case, the locals get shut out of, um, of the biggest economic benefit uh, from, from a new resort. And I think that, unfortunately, is probably in developing countries, that's probably the more common um, path. You make the point that um, beach vacations, destination beach vacations, are both threatened by climate change and rising seawater, um, mm-hmm. among other things, and are themselves massive contributors to mm-hmm. climate change because people need to almost always fly. And in, in the more exclusive the place, the more travel you need to do to get there, pretty much almost by mm-hmm. uh, by definition. Um I saw, and I don't think that you were patting yourself too much on the back for this, but you did mention at the top of the book that you did purchase offsets for all of your travel, which is, I think we can all agree, at least better than than nothing. Right. How much value do you think offsets have or are likely to have to the future world? I mean, I think, you know, it's not a highly regulated uh industry, the, the offset industry. Um, so I, I think, you know, if you do your research and make sure you're buying from a, a reputable um, company that, that deals with offsets, it's good to do it. Is it going to solve the entire <laughs> um, carbon footprint, footprint problem of travel? Absolutely not. Um, it's a good thing to do at the same time. I don't think we can, um, like you said, pat ourselves on the back just for buying offsets and say, okay, we've, you know, problem solved. So your book is called Last Resort. It makes the the case that the current resort model may be, uh, may be untenable. And I, I gather you now live sort of near in an area that was once a prime <laughs> resort location. It mm-hmm. obviously wasn't, wasn't, uh, that didn't go away because of um, the, the sorts of issues that are threatening maybe contemporary resorts. Obviously, there's going to be a different timetable for every place. Every every place is unique and has specific issues. But when you, I guess I'm just trying to figure out in general where we are in the tipping point. What sort of timetable would you say in general we're talking about for where don't come to Cancun anymore, don't come to Bali anymore? Is that is that 10 years? Is that 100 years? Or in your opinion, is that somewhere in the middle? I mean, that's a tricky question. I, I don't think that, you know, all of these resort areas are not going to disappear. And I actually think one like Cancun that generates so much economic activity, there's so much incentive to to save a place like that, that I actually think it has a better chance of, of uh, attracting the resources to 
maintain it than than some other and what, places. What does do. that mean? I mean, bringing in sand if you're losing yep. beaches. What else does that? What if you want to save something and you have the resources to go the extra mile? What does that actually look like? Yeah, I mean, it's it's there's a there's a huge reef off the coast of Cancun that um, is endangered, like most reefs are right now. Saving that is really important. Um, reefs are kind of a first line of defense for shorelines. They, if a storm's coming in, if big waves are coming in, they do break up the power of that storm and that wave before it hits the shore. So, you know, that's one example of resources that are being thrown into to saving that reef. There's other things besides just hauling in more sand, although that is a thing that is extremely expensive um, and is getting harder and harder to do as we're kind of running out of sand in a lot of parts of the world. Um, but, you know, there's other, you know, there's building dunes, there's building groins, there's building breakwaters, there's all kinds of like shoreline engineering is what they call it that that can be done to keep a shoreline in place um, if the economic incentive is there to do it. Do you see, you know, I know there's a couple examples in in the book of resorts that are being very proactive and maybe mm-hmm. not just making a good show of it, really actually trying to um, address the issues that they are themselves threatened by and contributing to. But, and this is what I mean about tipping point. It, I, I feel mm-hmm. like there's something in the air right now and, and, yeah. and, and this industry is a really good example of it, but it's, it's, it's not an isolated example where we're going from the things that, Hey, if we're not careful, they're going to happen someday to mm-hmm. it's happening now it's happening. And now I think anybody who cares to see it can see it. So do you see the industry actually committing to concrete changes, not just uh, appearances? No, I mean, across the board, no, not yet. Um, but you're right. I mean, you're right. Like just, I don't know if you've seen, and it's not resorts, but it is vacation beach homes in the outer banks are kind of one by one falling into the ocean right now. So it's, I mean, Wait, where's, the, just, where's the outer banks? It's in North Carolina. Oh, I okay. think North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah the, one of the Carolinas close enough. Yeah. It's one of the Carolinas for <laughs> yeah. sure. Um, yeah. I, it's, there's just crazy footage of, of, and it's not even particularly during big storms. It's just because the sand is washing away and they can't keep it in place anymore. Um, so I think you're totally right that we are at a point where this stuff is starting to happen. And, and within the next decade or two, a lot of shorelines aren't going to be saved. It's becoming too expensive to save them. There's, you know, insurance costs for resorts are getting prohibitively expensive in some cases. Um, like we said, the, the bringing in state, you know, like Miami beach is out of sand. There's no more sand off the shore of Miami beach right now. Um, and that was what, how they always did replenish their, their, uh, beaches. And so now they're importing it from a lake in the middle of the state of Florida, which is incredibly expensive. So all of these things are adding up to, um, a level of cost to, to run a resort that is probably going to mean that there just can't, be as many of them what do you see being like what's a place that people who are listening to this have been to or would consider going to that you think might just not be an option to visit or at least on any affordable scale in 10 15 years 10 15 years um i think it's hard to say in 10 15 years i think that within a few decades um 
I think Waikiki is going to look a lot different than it looks today. Um, and I, I think even with all the resources being thrown at it, there's going to be a breaking point um, within the next few decades there. Um, I think, you know, while, I mean, Miami Beach has so many challenges, um, it also has a lot of resources being thrown at it to save it. So, you know, it might make it. But I think a lot of smaller places along the Florida coast uh, probably won't. Was it? And again, I, I <laughs> your book is very nuanced, um, and I really appreciated that it wasn't just this massive "we're all gonna die," you know, chicken little uh, thing. But literally ten minutes before I started talking to you, I was looking at some news website and I saw some horrible climate news, and I just said, "I'm not gonna click on that." I sort of got the idea. There's nothing I can do about it. This particular morning, you were really getting up in it and going from place to place and sort of seeing the same issues play out over and over and over. I don't want to discourage people from reading your book, but was it ever depressing researching or writing this? Yeah. I mean, sure. You have moments where you're just, where you get kind of overwhelmed by the sense of we're screwed, you know? <laughs> right. Um, do you, think that, that do, do you feel like we're screwed? Um, um I mean, sometimes yes. Yeah. Um, in ways, yes, for sure. Um, but you know, there were moments of optimism also. One of the, one of the moments was, um, you know, when I went to this Island called Tiamen Island in Malaysia, um, that is not a very wealthy place. Um, they have, you know, fairly small scale beach tourism there, but they're just doing some really important things that, that make you stop and say, okay, it is possible to, to even without the enormous resources of a place like Miami beach fix some problems um the you know the one i talk about the most in the book is um that this this ngo that works very heavily on the island um bought a this sand making machine which is a fairly small thing you know it's probably four feet high and like two feet wide or something it's just in this guy's workshop there and um they were having a huge problem with all the beer bottles from from tourism, they had no way to get them off the island. They couldn't sell them for recycling. And so all of these beer bottles were just piling up on the island and creating a huge problem. This machine, you feed the beer, the beer bottles into the top of it and they come out at the bottom as sand. <laughs> and so you're solving these two problems all at once. You're creating sand and you're getting rid of the beer bottles. Um, and it was just such an elegant solution to me um, that, that, that did give me a sense of optimism for humans ability to and incentive to to actually solve some of the problems does miami know about that i mean florida has a lot of beer <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think you know i i i should get in touch and tell them right? yeah or you should get one of those they, machines and go they, down there they need a bigger one probably but yeah <laughs> they might need a couple yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> So, uh, all this having been said, if you could snap your fingers and like make one mandatory change to the international travel industry, the international beach and or resort industry, what do you think is the biggest single thing that could make a concrete difference? Um, I mean, one key, key thing that can happen is, and some countries are already doing this, is having setback rest restrictions, which means that you can't build on the beach anymore. Um, Nicaragua is an example that has, I think they have a 50 meter 
setback restriction, which means that you can't build anything within 50 meters of the high tide line um, of a beach. And just that simple thing of putting a little bit of real estate between the beach itself and the structures really helps the beach maintain its natural ecology. Um, and I think if everywhere did that, it would, it would, uh, it would be good for the resort's longevity and for the beaches that they're on. Okay. I was expecting you to say something that was completely impossible and impractical and never going to happen. That's, that's, that sounds, uh, you're not going to move this, existing resorts back, but you can do that moving forward. Right, right. There's my optimism again, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Solving problems. Um, and okay. I'm sure after working on this book, um, you'd had your fill of beach resorts for mm -hmm. a little while, but mm -hmm. in general, knowing now what you did not know going into it, do you see yourself choosing to spend your own money to go anywhere near a, 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 a beach resort or beach tourism destination anytime? Yeah. Um, I probably don't see myself, um, spending the money or the, um, carbon footprint on a long haul flight to go to a beach. I, I don't think that's something that I would probably do going forward. Um, and, you know, going into this, I, I, you know, part of what fascinated me about beach resorts was that I came to them, like we talked about earlier as an outsider, I really wasn't a beach person. And, um, and then I started dating my, my current boyfriend who is a surfer. So that kind of took me into going to, to beaches. Um, so because of him, I probably will end up at, um, a, a few more beach vacations here and there. Um, but I, I would say it's probably, it would probably not be the driving force of my deciding where to go. So what ought people do? Is it just as simple as we should all, you know, I, I think my family, for example, kind of follows mm -hmm. a very, at least white American trajectory of going to the beach in the Jersey shore. That was a vacation. And then all of a sudden yep. people airlines showed up and we could go to Disney mm -hmm. world. And mm -hmm. then uh, in my life, I've been, you know, fortunate enough to go to, you know, Bali and, and a couple of other places. Should we just, even though the technology exists to go to Bali, should we just willfully decide I'm just going back to, my local beach because it's the right thing to do? Yeah, I mean, that's so complicated. I think, you know, if you're just looking for a beach vacation, is it probably not the best idea to fly to the opposite end of the world for it? Probably. I mean, if if your main objective is the beach, I think you can look regionally and find beaches that will have everything that a beach even a great beach on the other side of the world will have. If you're going to Bali for tacos anyway, right, which is what right. many people seem to do. Right. Um, but no, I don't think it's realistic to, to say to people that you should stop traveling. I don't think that, I don't necessarily even think that is the ideal answer. I think there's a lot of benefit to be gained from, from travel um, societally and, you know, on a personal level. So I, I wouldn't say that, but, you know, I think, um, trying to take fewer long haul flights is a, is a good goal. Um, you know, taking trains and stuff when it's possible, I think is really important. And we're sort of being forced to starting to be forced to do that. 
a lot of, you know, some countries in Europe are banning domestic flights on routes that are train routes. France has done that. Um, you can't take a domestic flight anymore if really it's on a route where there's a train available. Yeah. So is Ryanair, yeah. is Ryanair just toast? I mean, no, I mean, Ryanair can still do international, but yeah. not, but there's no Ryanair anymore from say Paris to Marseille or something. I see. It's, I see. I you see. can't do that anymore. Yeah. Well, that's a start. That's a start. Yeah. It probably yeah. wasn't yeah. saving any time anyway. So. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I think things like that are going to, to gain um, popularity with, with governments. Um, Austria has put a minimum again, because of the Ryanairs, the discount airlines of the world, they've implemented a minimum 40 euro price for all flights that you can't have a flight less than 40 euros now. And they're doing that also to encourage train travel instead so that there aren't these super discounted flights that people are are taking when they could take a train instead. Yeah, don't take a flight to just go have lunch. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. All yes. right. Well, that sounds like that I can advocate for. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, finally, something we can all agree on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed uh, spending time with your book and I've enjoyed talking to you about it. I'll remind everybody it is called The Last Resort, A Chronicle of Paradise, Profit and Peril at the Beach. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah Stadola. Thank you so much for having me. 